HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Monday at 1 p.m., and that means you're listening to Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Leutzi, and I'm sitting in a shipping container in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, talking to you today about the intersection of food and technology. Tech Bytes is found on heritageradio.org. It is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. So if you like it, come back, listen, and download, and uh, take us with you. Before we get started, I always like to introduce everyone who is in studio so you can match the names to the voices. One of the most important people is Jack Inslee, the engineer who turns this into an actual podcast instead of me sitting in a container talking to myself. Jack is also the host of a really fun dance party radio show on Thursday nights at 730 called Full Service Radio. Hey, Jack. I love this plug I get every week. It's so awesome. Thank you. I really like the show, genuinely. Thanks. (laughs) And under the cover of radio, I'm very happy to introduce my guest today, Ryan Sutton, the restaurant critic at Eater New York. And you can hear him, but you can't see him. So that's why radio is better than TV. Radio is much better than TV for restaurant critics, including myself. So thank you for having me on, Jennifer. I appreciate it. (laughs) So the first thing we do on Tech Bytes is we start off with an appetizer, which is talking about our favorite apps. And perhaps an app that you think needs to be invented also, if there isn't anything that you really enjoy out there right now, Ryan. You have a couple moments to think about your answer. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. Um, I, I, would I be cheating if I said my favorite app was Twitter? Um, or are we looking for something more restaurant-focused? No, not at all. It's purely personal. Oh, gosh. Uh, Twitter is... Uh, you know, gosh, uh, I remember I've been doing this for almost 10 years, 
And it's incredible to think that uh, Twitter has only been around, at least for me, I signed up in 2009. I know, I know it was around for a little bit longer than that. But I was coming over here uh, to Bushwick, and I was just recounting to myself about how many stories I have been able to break simply because of the news that has been provided to me by virtue of the people either I follow or people who have sent me tips uh, via direct message. And a lot of those tips have been... Uh, pertaining to something I do that tracks the price of restaurants in a blog I run called The Price Hike. And without the power of Twitter, and even though that blog is on Tumblr, without the power of Twitter, uh, I would be deprived of at least probably 15% of my stories. And so, without a doubt, the information I get from that is uh, it's, it's simply life-changing. Uh, if I could pick another one, it's not necessarily my favorite app. I've just been, I've been playing around with Resi uh, a lot these past a uh, few weeks. Uh, I've never used it before. Uh, as you know, Resi is an app uh, where you can pay for reservations. Uh, it's a little bit... Uh, it's not necessarily how I roll. Uh, a lot of people who know me know that uh, instead of making pseudonymous reservations uh, in my role as a critic, I do something a little bit different. I mainly walk into places. With that said, I know a lot of people who are stressed out about reservations, and they like them. And I... I I can't put it any simpler than this, that I think, I think Resi offers a, a pretty nice service in the fact that uh, you can simply uh, go onto your app, uh, you can open it up, and if you want two seats at the bar, at Bar Bowl or not, you can simply pay uh, 10 or $15 or whatever they charge. It's raised a little bit of a debate. Should we be paying for access? Um, doesn't really bother me. We pay for access in, in so many different areas of life, whether it be refundable business class tickets uh, on an airline, whether it be last-minute tickets to a theater. Uh, major credit card companies normally hold uh, seats for some of the best plays for business clients for anywhere from 250 to $500 per person. And so, again, even if it's not an app, I've necessarily used Resi, um, founded by Ben Lemethal, one of the old... Uh, co-founders of Eater. Uh, I respect what they're trying to do. Uh, I think they're moving in the right direction. And I think it's interesting the notion of paying for access for restaurants. Uh, because it will at least, if it can, I mean, listen, uh, people have made the argument, and I think it's a right one, that you don't need reservations at most restaurants. Like I said, I walk into almost every single restaurant uh, that I walk, I, I walk into almost every single restaurant that I eat at. Um, but if seats are being kept empty every night because people don't realize that, uh, that there are walk-in seats. And if people don't eat out at restaurants because they feel like they need to have a reservation, then you know what? Rizzi is a great way to kind of hold their hand as they cross the street and get them into the restaurants. <laughs> and it gets the restaurants a little extra money. Why he, did the dinner patron cross the street to get to the Rizzi on the other side? To get to the Rizzi on the other <laughs> side. So if this helps people who don't normally eat out get into restaurants, and if it helps restaurants fill seats, then I don't really see any harm coming of it. Uh, there are, you know, people writing all these ink pieces about Rizzi. It's like, oh, there's going to be no longer any seats for walk-ins, and restaurants are going to be a, you know, a bastion for the upper class. Yeah. Maybe one day, a hundred years into the future, that could happen. And but that's more of an ad absurdum argument. It's not very a practical argument. Uh, in my opinion, Resi uh, is helping uh, put people in restaurants, and and that's not a bad thing, even if I don't necessarily use it. But I, I respect it, and I, I think they're doing cool and interesting stuff. Well, we I could do a whole show on Resi. I think the the reaction people have to that app and to the concept more than the app is has been very polarizing, and we're really entering into 
the next stage, I think, in how people can get access to restaurants and get access to reservations. So, but let's just table that for just a second because that's a definitely a, a conversation whirlwind that we could run into and, and not leave for a few days. <laughs> Jack, do you have an app that you like this week? Oh, man, mine's embarrassing, but I'll make it really quick. Um, so, <laughs> I'm excited so, to hear if it's so, embarrassing. You know, Kanye came out with his Yeezy Boost shoes. Yes. Right? I don't know if you guys know this. He had some ridiculous product launch uh, on the 13th, and they're $350 a pair, and they released, I think, 1,000 pairs. All-Star Weekend. Uh-huh, exactly. So Adidas came out with this app that was supposed to make it fair for you to reserve your pair. Now, to be clear, I definitely did not want to buy a $350 pair of shoes for myself. I came into this with the smart idea of wanting to buy them and resell them. But I didn't get any. Um, but it was it's, it's interesting to think that like they released an app for the sole purpose of reserving this one shoe, um, Adidas. So it's just like a simple app with basically, you know, one button here, and it waits to tell you if you get it or you don't get it. And you so, did not get it, did so not, it didn't did not work for you. It. it did not work for me. So would you have been willing to pay for a reservation to get a better spot yeah, well, on the sure, shoe list? You know, <laughs> totally. I mean, these shoes are selling for like fifteen hundred dollars now. It's insane. I don't understand it. But. That is crazy. You could have dinner for two at Masa for that yeah, almost. Definitely. <laughs> well, my app this week, I actually have two, and they both come from the Japanese clothing store Uniqlo, which is one of my personal, personal favoritest places to shop. Not just in New York City, it's international, and there's something quite comforting knowing that if you find yourself in Bangkok and you forgot to pack socks and a long sleeve t-shirt, you can always trundle off to Uniqlo and they will have exactly the same thing at relatively exactly the same price. So they have a section on their website, which is digital tools to improve daily life. And they have two apps that I really like. One is called Uniqlo Recipes, and it's a very interesting, almost recipe, fashion, lookbook how to cook video mashup. They have six emerging chefs, ranging from Brian Leith of Vinegar Hill House here in New York and Kim Alter of Plum in California. And the chefs are dressed in clothes that in a color scheme match the colors of the plates of the recipes that are on the site. And as you scroll through it, the colors change of the border and the topography, if it's moving from you know, potatoes to plums to pasta to salads where everything, their clothing, it's, you know, a brown sweater, a green sweater. So it's very visual and interesting. It's almost Panatone color cookbook. That's really beautiful and a lot of fun. And the other thing they have is this very interesting Uniglo wake up alarm app. And what it does is it wakes you up with a woman's voice singing a little song that's different depending on the weather because she will tell you it's partly cloudy today, it's sunny today, it's nine, you know, it's nine forty-five, partly sunny, and it just keeps playing over and over again. So those are two things that are kind of fun, and I, I don't know if they'll actually improve your daily life, but they might start it off a little bit with a little bit of humor. So Ryan, I'm very happy to have him here because his trajectory in restaurant reviewing sort of fits perfectly into the Tech Bytes discussion because as he said at the top of the show, he's been reviewing restaurants for 10 years. And when we consider things like Twitter and Instagram that didn't exist 10 years ago, 
I can only imagine what kind of impact social media and technology has had on restaurant reviewing as a profession and the product that you put out. But before we get to what's changed, tell us how you started, because I know that a lot of people think reviewing restaurants is one of the bestest jobs ever. And how everybody wants to be a restaurant critic, because they imagine you get to go out to eat to all these wonderful restaurants all the time for free, and then just talk about what you liked and didn't like. Well, for free, and then get paid. Let's be clear. It is the bestest job ever, and I'm, I'm very happy that I have it. Uh, it's incredible, though, that at 10 years ago, there wasn't, uh, the food writing community didn't have the, uh, the breadth, uh, the deepness of the bench wasn't there uh, that it is now. Uh, when I first started food writing, Eater was just founded, and I was working as a, a young unpaid intern at Time Out New York. The reason I was working as a young and unpaid intern is because I was waiting on a government security clearance. I was going to go work as a Russia analyst for the uh, United States government. Uh, more or less, my major in undergrad was Russian area studies and Russian language, and I had an early career as a human rights worker, uh, as a human rights activist for the international campaign to ban landmines. Uh, that career didn't necessarily work out, so I kind of decided to switch to the other side, uh, to the government, a little bit more stability. And so I was waiting on my clearance. I needed to pass the time. So I took this job at uh, Time Out New York, and I said, you know what? Maybe I could make this food writing thing worked out. And I had this kind of revelation in grad school, because even though I was passionate about Russia, even though I was... Uh, the Russian language is part of my soul, as I like to say. I remember being in these classes with all these other kids, and their neurons were always firing a little bit quicker than mine when it came to all these political international affair uh, things, for lack of a better word. And uh, so I had this back page column in the school newspaper that was kind of culinary-related, kind of humor-related, and I said, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm better at this. And uh, and, and finally, it worked out with Time Out. They, they, they moved me up from being an unpaid intern, faxing and filing and fact-checking, and they let me do the, the food stuff. And one thing led to another. All of a sudden, I'm at Bloomberg. I'm writing about food for them. And so by the time the government calls, I said, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this. And because, and I hope this doesn't come across as immodest. I said, I, I could probably be an average government analyst writing about Russia, or I could probably be a, a pretty good food critic because... You know, I, I, I had a, a very specific view about how to go about this job that I thought was a little bit different from, from other visions and, and, and other people who were doing this job at the time. I, I worked at Bloomberg, and, and Bloomberg was a very data-heavy and, and fact-driven organization. Still uh, is, probably. It, it still very much <laughs> is. Um, and, and some people criticized Bloomberg at the time. I joined around 2005, and I remember Matt Winkler coming into our training class, and he said, you know, the, the number one people, and he was the editor-in-chief at the time, the number one, people, number one reason people don't read Bloomberg stories is because they're too boring. And that was true at the time, and, it, and things got better. But still, there was a, a real data-heavy focus to organization. I remember one of his mantras was, facts are expensive and opinions are cheap. Now, as a, a professional critic, I take issue uh, with a lot of that statement. But when you come to think about it, there's actually something smart behind it when you, uh, when you try to apply it to criticism. Uh, a, a lot of criticism, uh, and I, I say a lot uh, in, a, in a very normative way, in the sense that I include Yelp in there as well, 
Um, but, you know, the, the worst criticisms, i.e. the ones you find at Yelp, are, you know, I went to this restaurant with my boyfriend, and they stuck a candle in the cake, and, uh, and we had a great time. It's, it's, I like this, I don't like that criticism. And professional critics aren't like that. That's more Yelpish. Um, but that is the best example of opinions are cheap and, and facts are expensive. Uh, the factual side of what we do at Restaurant Critics is incredibly expensive. The fact that this steak was overcooked, what precisely this tasting menu tasted like <laughs> – there, my editor would kill me for that word echo. What exactly a tasting menu was like at the restaurant at Meadowood? You know, what precisely is that experience akin to? That cost $500. That's an example of facts being expensive. And that, to me, was the part of restaurant criticism that I was intrigued by, not necessarily by giving my opinion, but by simply reporting what is, the repertorial aspect of the job. And So, so the, the big difference between restaurant criticism and a person expressing their own experience, and if it's a negative experience, it comes off as being critical, is that the restaurant critic is trying to assess the experience based on past experiences, based on standards in the industry, and not necessarily interject a, I liked that steak, but to say that steak seems to be of the proper quality for this type of establishment at the proper price prepared in the way it was advertised that you ordered and sort of assess the actuality of the transaction versus the emotion of I had the best birthday ever or they crushed my birthday and, and now I'm going to be sad for a whole year. <laughs> Precisely. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, we're trying to bring a certain amount of objectivity uh, into the writing process. Uh, but but you can't completely uh, divorce subjectivity from it. And I, I think that is where we get... If, if Yelp is one side of the extreme, the other side of the extreme is Michelin, uh, which tries to be a little bit too objective about things. You know, Michelin is an organization where uh, you take the reviews out of the review and you simply have a star system, uh, a relatively, in my opinion, uh, untransparent star system. And even though I like their standards, I often have a hard time assessing what their standard is. So, and, and So what I want to do as a critic is to kind of find happy medium between those two extremes of the ultra-objectivity of Michelin and the ultra-subjectivity of Yelp. And in the middle, you have, you know, what I call, uh, you know, fun and happy context. I always say there are four aspects to a restaurant review. And I, even though I often forget four, all four of them, I'll see if I can do it right now. You know, the, uh, the first and most important thing, of course, is the context, you know, why this restaurant is important. Uh, the second thing to me, of course, is the value equation, the value equation, what it costs. Uh, the third part, of course, is the I like this and I don't like that. That's the civic journalism aspect of it. And the fourth, of course, is what I like to call the vicarious experience, that most people, when you read a restaurant review, they're not necessarily going to go to a restaurant, but they're simply sitting there at their desks, and they want to be entered up into a, a, a little fun little world of per se or masa, where things are expensive, and, and the foie gras always melts on time, and, and, and the servers are perfect and, and, and pretty, and they wear tight shirts, uh, whether they be male or female. And that's the vicarious experience of restaurant criticism. So the four aspects, and, and I, I, I thought I was pretty good at that, and that's why you know I, I, I more or less went into this field, rather than going back into government service, where it would be hard to write about, you know, how the, the foie gras melts in, I don't know, in Chechnya, <laughs> where people are being killed. Your two examples are perfect for this discussion in that Yelp is populist, and it's the people, and it's 
anyone can go on that forum and express their opinion. It's also driven by technology. Whereas Michelin is the other extreme. It's private. It's closed doors. It started in 1900. And it was, for the most part, a, a very private paper book guide. So having started 10 years ago, I'm assuming that Yelp did not really weigh into your restaurant information at the very beginning. I, I would be curious to know sort of how the advent of social media and platforms like Yelp and the technology and Instagram and all of this information that you have available to you impacts your review experience. Uh, it's 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 incredible how it does, whether it be whether it be Yelp, whether it be Twitter, or whether it be something as simple as Google image search uh, or Flickr, which is as, as such a deeper bench than it did uh, when it all first started. I remember back when I was at Bloomberg a couple years ago, and I was trying to pitch uh, a piece on high-end vegetables. I ended up writing a 2,000-word story about how uh, chefs at high-end tasting menu restaurants in California, uh, including Cezanne, the restaurant at Meadowood, Atelier Crane, and, of course, David Kinch's famous and delicious Manresa, how they were using um, more and more vegetables and decreasing the role of the protein as the center of the plate. Uh, the, uh, each individual dish was, um, it was almost as if food was becoming disaggregated, and there was no longer a, a dish that was simply a, a steak with vegetables on the side. It was bits of steak and bits of vegetables all mixed in together in a, in a, in a happy meat salad. You know, David Kinch often talks about his food as vegetables seasoned with small bits of meat. Uh, and its food is absolutely, absolutely delicious. I hope he does get that third Michelin star since we've been talking about that. But in any case, the reason I bring up this example is that when I was pitching this story, uh, it would have been impossible for me to have pitched it years ago because the main device I used for research was uh, probably the Altier Epicure. He's a big food photographer. I was going through virtually every single one of his old Flickr photos of Manresa over the course of a few years because uh, he had been there so many times. I was looking at all his photos from uh, Cezanne by Joshua Skenes. It just got a third Michelin star, incidentally. I was looking at Adam Goldberg's. Uh, he's another big food blogger. I was looking at all of his photos. And through, uh, <laughs> through deep diving uh, into their photo streams, I was able to identify which restaurants were, were best suitable uh, for, for my pitching purpose. And, and that's a, an instance of, of not just technology in terms of a Flickr and, and Google image search helping me do my job. It's an example of two prominent food bloggers uh, setting the path for uh, a, a full-time reporter to do his job. And that's hugely important. That shows that we, none of us operate in a vacuum and no. that we all, you know, we all depend on each other to do our jobs. You know, I, even Eater, where I work now, um, it, it's been my home screen on my Safari browser for probably the past nine out of the ten years. And on that note, we all also depend on our wonderful sponsors. And now is the perfect time to take a little break, listen to some new music from Jack, and hear who's sponsoring the show. And this one's called Meeting at the Docks by Rectech. This is Tech Bites on Heritage Radio Network.
Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. So if you've just tuned in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from two shipping containers in Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today we are talking with restaurant critic Ryan Sutton. He writes at Eater.com. And not only is he a restaurant critic, he is, at, or at the outset, a data guy. And while his restaurant reviews are certainly helpful and a part of the scale of how we decide what's good and what's bad, I think his biggest piece of public service work is in his two blogs, The Price Hike and The Bad Deal. And they have been crunching numbers on menu prices and specialty pricing and Valentine's Day menus for, for quite some time. And I think that's really where... Your, your true service to the public comes in. So tell us how you started the price hike and the bad deal. Uh, I started the price hike uh, about three or actually almost four years ago in 2011. I won't lie, I was going through a bad breakup. My heart was broken by a young lady, and I needed some way to pass the time. And I think I was, um, I was probably on spring break, and I simply decided to start this Tumblr. Um, there's a better, more... A substantive story to that as well. I remember being at Bloomberg, and they told me when I noticed that the price at Per Se, one of New York's most expensive restaurants, had r- had risen. I believe at the time from two seventy five to two ninety five, service compris, service included. So, and also one of the most expensive restaurants in the country by default. Uh, by default, without a doubt. Um, it's now $310 a person. But in any case, I noticed that no one was reporting on it. And I remember telling uh, one of my editors at Bloomberg that uh, we should do a full story in it. And they're like, oh, we don't need to do a full story. We should just, you know, put it in your column. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to bury this in my column. And there's no way I'm going to have this detract from a regular review. I want to you know, do this my own way. And so when no one was looking, uh, because... Uh, social media, at least four or five years ago, uh, wasn't as uh, robust. Wasn't as robust and wasn't <laughs> as accepted with open arms as uh, at the editorial staffs of a uh, number of major publications, including my own. So I kind of did a little uh, a sneaky thing. I started a Tumblr called the Price Hike, and and I and I and I I didn't write about per se um, because I already tweeted about that. But I think my first big price hike was at the Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, which is another one of uh, America's most expensive restaurants. And the reason I was doing all this is because I remember, and at, at this point I'd been in food for five or six years and been writing about food, and I, I got so many press releases about when there was a new dish or when they were putting foie gras on the menu, when white truffles were coming in the season, and when they were introducing a new tasting menu. But I never got a press release about the most important thing in the world, when your prices are going up and, and how much things are going to cost. Uh, the, the story I often tell, and if you're bored by it at this point, I apologize, and one of the first big tasting menu experiences I ever had was at WD-50 
I spent my own money. It was after one of my first paychecks at Bloomberg. Which year was this? Uh, this was in 2005. Okay, so this is quite some time ago. ago. Yeah, it was in November of 2005. And I came home to my father, and he said, where were you? Because uh, I was living at home at the time. I was just out of grad school. Because you were spending all your money eating out. I was spending all my money eating out. And I, I go back home to Long Beach. I was living with my father. And he said, uh, where were you tonight? I said, WD-50. He said, how was it? I said, it was great. He goes, how much did it cost? I said, $182. And he didn't talk to me for the rest of the evening. And uh, <laughs> I, I tell that story, and I tell it over and over and over again, because it, uh, it I think, exemplifies how, to so many people, uh, we... Uh, the press releases aren't necessary. They they simply need to know two things. Uh, did you like it? And how much did it cost? And how much did it cost can negate the whole experience well, for so many people, my father included. I'm going to put Jack a little bit on the spot in the booth. He didn't want to pay $325 for a pair of sneakers. Would you pay $325 for a meal? I have. Oh. Uh, I, I mean, I don't like to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was Del Posto, but... I don't know. No, it's a bit high for me. Okay. Del Posto, I think, is, is, is slowly be, uh, growing into one of New York's best uh, Italian restaurants. Um, I, I, I was there two weeks ago with a... Uh, I was there two weeks ago, and uh, let's just say we had a great time. Wonderful. So back to your father not talking to you because you're eating... You're spending too much money on food. Well, uh, so that was, that was the impetus, um, uh, even though that happened six years before the founding of the price hike. Um, that, that really was one of the impetuses. Uh, I'm sure there's a better Latin way of saying that, uh, to begin this blog. And I, it, it, it's, it, it's a tumbler, and so it's lean. It's pared down. Uh, it's not an attempt to compete with Eater. Of course, I work for Eater now, and a lot of the content I would have originated on the price hike, I now originate on Eater. Um, but that said, it was a way for me to be single-mindedly focused about a single thing. How much does dinner cost? And you know, one of the things I was really proud of that I developed both at Bloomberg and there was something called uh, the real cost of dinner, uh, which is not something I really developed myself. I simply applied European pricing models uh, to price articulation in America. Uh, in um, Europe, when you go to a fancy Michelin-starred restaurant or pretty much any restaurant, all prices are service compre. They're inclusive of both VAT, tax, uh, and service. So when you see that um, uh, a lender cost at the Plaza Athene is 385 euros, your check actually says 385 euros. You don't have to add tax and tip. And listen, I realize the math is not exactly calculus. It's not rocket science. But to me, it always seemed as if American menus were understating the cost of dinner. And so something I did with the price hike is that whenever there was a fancy tasting menu restaurant, I would make sure to say that per se wasn't just $310. It was you know, uh, closer to $675 or two after tax services actually included there. Or that masa, it's best not articulated as $450 a person, but because you're probably going with someone to dinner for masa will inevitably cost no less than, I believe, $1,169. Um, it's really expensive sushi. It's really expensive sushi. And so if we, uh, if we went about our conversation that way, about saying exactly how much dinner cost for two, uh, then I think we'd be uh, in a better ballpark and we'd be, we'd be better serving the readers. And that's something I, I did not just at the price hike, which I continue to do. It's something I do at, at Eater with a, a fun little uh, tool I use called Infogram, which lets me use in interactive graphs to show you how much the price of dinner is going to be 
uh, based on how big your party is. And I've also developed like a small little model. Again, it's not rocket science to judge how much dinner will be not just at a fancy tasting menu restaurant, but at an everyday people restaurant, uh, like, say, Little Park by Andrew Carmelini. And I create a range. I take the least expensive appetizers and the most expensive appetizers, do the same thing with the entrees, and then create a range after after tax tip and wines by the glass to show that instead of looking at Little Park as all the small plates being $12, uh, the better figure uh, to say is that dinner at Little Park is going to cost anywhere from, say, $80 to $130 for two. And so we're, we're simply taking numbers and we're expressing them th- in a different way. For diners, then, you're giving them the two halves almost to the equation. The real data-driven economics of it, how much is it actually costing you so they can make educated decisions about where they want to go, and then the more tactile review of this is two stars, this is four stars. So you have all that information online for people. But the, as, as the last thing, because we're out of time, what would you give as advice to the public to having – what's, what's the key to getting the best restaurant experience? The key to a, a best restaurant experience is uh, walking in and not making a reservation uh, uh, to most of the restaurants, in my opinion, and simply being a regular. Uh, go to the bar, eat at the bar. And don't order the same thing every time. Uh, I, I, we're here at Roberta's, in a, or at least in a shipping container right next to Roberta's. And I'll come with my parents, say, on a Saturday night. Uh, we'll wait an hour to get a couple of seats at the bar. And we'll simply order all the new stuff off the menu. Uh, we're regulars. Uh, it doesn't mean we get you know, expedited treatment. We still wait for those three seats at the bar. But it means that we're being adventurous with our choices, and and I think that uh, chefs and waiters uh, they like nothing more than people who come back, and 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 that's that's more important than anything because restaurants thrive not just on people going once; restaurants thrive on regulars. And so if you if you like a restaurant, then support what they do and, and keep going and and make sure to try the new stuff because otherwise our cuisine will be stale. If food, in my opinion, is you know it's you know that famous Woody Allen line. In any hall, relationship is like a, a shark. If it if it doesn't move forward, it 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 eventually ends up just staying still and dying. Yep. Same thing with food; it needs to move forward. And if we if we you know come into Roberta's every day and or, only order the wagyu flank steak, then Roberta's won't be able to progress. We have to be just as adventurous as as the chefs are, even if that means taking a risk and and ordering something that we might not end up liking. Risk, risk, risk. That's the most important thing, not just for chefs but for diners as well. And we have to we have to indulge their creativity just a little bit and then we can have the pizza at the end of the night a little bit (laughs) of risk and a little bit of safety sounds like you need an additional tumbler called the walk-in perhaps because all of this advice that you've just given us is not present in any of your online arenas so consider maybe for 2015 you can start the walk-in with all this kind of fantastic advice also i might do just that (laughs) and when you do you can come back on to tech bites i want to thank ryan sutton the restaurant critic at eater.com for coming on And if you enjoyed the show, come back next week on Monday at 1 p.m. Go to iTunes, download the podcast, and give us some stars. Five-star review? Five stars. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 